Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And this is a special episode that we're releasing in response to the recently published Management of Acetaminophen Poisoning in the U.S. and Canada, a consensus statement of America's Poison Centers, American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, American College of Medical Toxicology, and the Canadian Association of Poison Control Centers. This was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Open Journal on August 8th. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with the corresponding author, Dr. Richard Dart, MD, PhD. We're going to dive into some of the important recommendations and definitions made by the consensus statement that can impact how you take care of acetaminophen overdose patients. Acetaminophen overdose intersects with many different areas of healthcare, emergency medicine, critical care medicine, general medicine, psychiatric, toxicology. So the recommendations we're about to discuss will be relevant to many different practice areas. This episode is a deeper dive into the actual recommendations and the rationale behind them with the consensus statement's lead author. But if you're looking for a high-yield, just-the-facts highlights to get yourself up to speed on the most recent acetaminophen overdose management recommendations, I released a mini-episode right alongside this episode. This mini-episode is a high-yield overview with important treatment recommendations and definitions made by the consensus statement covered in about 10 minutes. There's a link to that high-yield review in the show notes. So if you don't have time for the full interview, check that one out first and come back to this one when you have time. Or take a listen to it to get yourself up to speed on all the recommendations before we do a deeper breakdown in this interview. Okay, that's enough for me. Let's dive into the guidelines. On with the show. Hey, everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. And this is a really special episode to highlight the brand new consensus statement on the management of acetaminophen poisoning in the United States and Canada that was published in JAMA Open Network on August 8th. This is going to be so relevant to many of our listeners who take care of overdose patients, whether you work in the emergency department, uh, whether you work in general medicine, intensive care, psychiatry, or even at a poison center. There are going to be things here that will be very valuable to you. So we're going to take this episode to highlight some of the major recommendations from this consensus statement. And we are extremely lucky to have the first author of the consensus statement with us today, Dr. Richard Dart, MD, PhD. Dr. Dart, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners and give us a little bit about your role and background? Sure, Ryan. Um... My name is Rick Dart, and I'm director of Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety, which is a department of uh, Denver Health and Hospitals, the public hospital for um, Denver, Colorado. A principal investigator, I guess you would say, on this project, uh, which was a group of 21 people. And while I'm listed first, you couldn't get a more um, group effort of 21 different people coming together to uh, create these guidelines. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on the significance of acetaminophen poisoning in the U.S. and Canada and why a consensus statement is needed? Yeah, as toxicologists and even emergency physicians, we all know that uh, acetaminophen poisoning is not uncommon. Um, and But the numbers are a little higher than people think sometimes. Uh, for example, the National Injury Surveillance uh, Network estimates almost 80,000 uh, ED visits per year in the United States for acetaminophen. And poison centers receive well over 80,000 cases uh, per year. Um, that's putting all poison centers together. So there's clearly a big clinical activity here, which has changed over the years. You know, a lot of the information that I learned um, as a resident and fellow back, uh, I won't say how long ago, um, has changed, right? There's new developments, there's new products out there, there's new antidotes out there. And uh, we felt it was time to bring a group together that was very representative of, of, of toxicology practice and emergency medicine practice to get that into one document and give people something to, uh, to, to refer to when they're taking care of patients. 
So let's talk a little bit about what kind of people were brought together in this guideline. So what organizations were involved in the creation of the guideline? Who weighed in on the various aspects that were voted on? Yeah, the way this was created was I wrote up I wrote a proposal for an educational grant. And so we should say right at the top that this was funded by Johnson and Johnson, the uh, manufacturers of Tylenol. Uh, and they gave us an unrestricted educational grant to bring together groups. And the idea was that the four toxicology organizations that we're all familiar with, um, you know, America's Poison Centers, as we're now called, uh, uh, AACT, ACMT, and the Canadian Association of Poison Centers and Clinical Toxicologists would appoint the panel members. I was the chair, and a non-voting chair, by the way, and but 21 people were chosen by the uh, organizations. Um, I should say 20 because I'm one of the 21, but um, I could debate things. I didn't get to vote on them. And um, and so we took whatever the whatever the associations gave us. Um, and that was the panel. Um, the we asked the associations to consciously think about uh, providing a diverse practice experience, meaning we wanted people at different levels of care, PharmDs as well as, as uh, physicians, also people who were at least who were double boarded if possible in emergency medicine and toxicology, that kind of thing, so that we could get diverse experience, also geographic diversity. All of which they were very, very good to work with and, and did a great job of picking the uh, the panelists. And I noticed that in this guideline creation, something maybe unique is that uh, poison center guidelines were actually sourced from many of the members and analyzed to look at maybe regional practice differences. Because while Tylenol seems like it's cut and dry, as we will learn, there are many different <laughs> decision points that might differ based off of specific practice styles. So yeah. it does seem to also take into account maybe unifying or at least assessing all, you know regional practice styles. Yeah, that and that was uh, that was the first time I've done a lot of consensus statements, and that was the first time we've tried that approach, um, because it seemed to me that why wouldn't we consider that part of quote the literature that we reviewed, um, and it was an eye opener. I'll, I'll say. I mean, there were much more. Uh, diverse approaches than I thought. And um, like you, I thought, well, we all do this pretty much the same. And at a certain level, that's true, right? I mean, we all assess the patient and we give acetylcysteine, et cetera. Um, but the details of that really differed a lot between, um, between centers. And so hopefully this will allow some level of uh, standardization. Um, I certainly don't believe in rigid standardization, but I think it's useful to know what other people are doing and what recommendations are so that you can see where you stand compared to other practitioners. Absolutely. And I think there are very few Tylenol or acetaminophen overdoses that get through healthcare without making contact with the poison center. So it's good to to have some, yeah. some consensus yeah. in there. And part of this consensus is just making sure we're all talking about the same thing, using the same language. So let's dive right into the guidelines here. Some of the big things that came from this consensus criteria. I know I was kind of excited about it. Uh, so the guideline made some definitions. Particularly, uh, I want to start off with talking about the definitions of an acute acetaminophen overdose and a repeated supertherapeutic ingestion. Because these are sort of two different uh, things and they have different treatment considerations. So can we start off with what is an acute ingestion and what is a chronic ingestion or, or sorry, a repeated <laughs> super therapeutic ingestion? And that, that was one of the, you know, one of this, one of the benefits of doing a rigorous process like this is looking through and actually reading old papers that you presumably read before. Uh, and we made a, a really surprising um, discovery when we did that. And that is that we have a nomogram that we all know and love and use all the time. And, um, and, and Dr. Rumack was a consultant on the project. So he was at the meetings and participated. We looked at the articles for the Rumack Matthew nomogram, and it was fascinating because when you read the methods, their definition of acute was, um, was very simple. It was 
anybody who had ingested acetaminophen or over a period of less than 24 hours. It wasn't one hour or four hours or eight hours. You know, we've all seen those numbers uh, defining an acute, uh, um, or sometimes they call it a, an acute single ingestion. Um, but in reality, the nomogram was literally validated on anyone, no matter what their ingestion pattern was, as long as that ingestion's, as he put it, the first pill passed the lips with, in the 24 hours before the, the serum acetaminophen concentration was determined. So the Arumac matthew nomogram, I'm sure many of the listeners are well aware of what that is. Just in case anyone's not aware, Rumac matthew nomogram is our treatment prognostication nomogram that we use for acetaminophen. And we plot your concentration after the time of ingestion. And if you're over what we call the treatment line, you have a, a risk, a, a higher risk than someone who's not above the treatment line for developing uh, what we call hepatotoxicity, which is defined as uh, AST, ALT greater than 1,000. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to you know, liver failure, but it's certainly uh, is it the higher risk population that we want to get treatment started on. So there's a whole bunch of debate and, and a lot of people kind of talk about, well, okay, who qualifies for treatment on this nomogram? And so the consensus guidelines state anyone who has an acute ingestion can be plotted on the rumac matthew nomogram to determine if they need treatment. And the definition of an acute ingestion in the guidelines is just any overdose of acetaminophen taken within a 24-hour period doesn't need to be all taken within you know two hours. That's right. One of the things we found in the, uh, the poison center guidelines and throughout the literature, frankly, is just, I mean, a dozen different definitions of what uh, an acute ingestion actually meant. Um, and so that's very confusing. And, and, and if a practitioner works in one area and calls the poison center and then moves and they're going to get potentially different answers and it's even more confusing. This way it makes it nice and clean. No matter how much they took, no matter how many times they took a dose, as long as it's 24 hours or less, you're an acute. And if it's over, if it spans more than 24 hours, you're repeated. That first pill past the lips, that's time yeah. point zero. If you take four grams two hours later and another four grams four hours after that, you know, you're still plotting from time point zero right. to assess yeah. your acetaminophen level. And, um, and it looks like for the minimum dose you know, determined to be an overdose. There's a little bit of gray area here. It looks like the Rumac Matthew nomogram was validated on anyone taking more than 7.5 grams of acetaminophen in 24 hours. Um, and it looks like the consensus statement makes a mention of if you're a child less than six years old, 150 milligrams per kilo within 24 hours, or an adult 10 grams uh, per day or 200 mg per kilo within 24 hours, whichever is less, it looks like. But often times patients aren't super sure about what they took as it is. So uh, really any suspected overdose within 24 hours is going to account as acute. Yeah, that. so I think the important distinction there, and it, it's, it could be clear, I think, in the guidelines, but to clarify that issue is, you know, really anyone who has taken an ingestion that spanned more than 24 hours is the is an RSTI, a repeated supertherapeutic ingestion. So it's more of a diagnosis issue, uh, actually, I think, is that if you're acute, you use the, 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 the nomogram. If you're repeated, if, if you have a history of repeated that expand, that goes over 24 hours, um, and especially if it's over a certain dose as, as in the guidelines, then you should be getting a concentration uh, and an ALT, looking at those and deciding whether to treat the patient at that point. Um, I, I see it more as a diagnostic issue or rather than that it guides therapy. I guess it guides the initiation of therapy. Let's put it that way, right? Um, that's probably a better way to put it. And because once you initiate therapy, which is another issue we can come back to, uh, that was also a very, a very animated discussion among the group. Of, of, you know, how long do you continue uh, acetylcysteine once you started it? Right. And we're going to dive into that. We're going to talk about the treatment doses and when you stop. As you were saying, it's more of a diagnostic issue of what is an acute ingestion to determine whether yeah. or not you are a candidate for the Rumac Matthew right. nomogram. Once you're out of that acute phase, 
And I can't tell you how many times I get this question when I'm getting consults through the Poison Center. I have a patient who took more. Uh, they took acetaminophen over, let's say, 36 hours. And I get a call saying, oh, okay, well, their acetaminophen level is zero. It's not on the rumac Matthew normogram, so they're good to go home, right? <laughs> or, or how do we treat... That well, happens. Can we talk a little bit about how repeated super therapeutic is going to be different than... than That's, that, I mean, that happens a lot, and it's understandable when the people are not treating acetaminophen poisoning on a regular basis to get confused about those, which is why I like this much cleaner distinction between the acute and repeated. Um, when you are repeated, then I like to use the, I guess I'm, I'm old, so I'm not sure everyone will understand this, but there was an old thing in computers called WYSIWYG, which is the abbreviation for what you see is what you get. And that's that's how that that's how I view the repeated supertherapeutic ingestion. And what that means is that when it's been more than 24 hours, and if you're taking substantial doses, especially things that could cause liver failure, then you've already started to manifest that injury and you should see uh, an increase ALT. And so for people more than 24 hours who took an ingestion over 24 hours, you really just need to do the, the ALT and the serum uh, acetaminophen concentration. The ALT tells you whether injury has already started. Often it has, and then you know to treat. Um, the acetaminophen is to tell you whether the potential for more injury is there. Um, so if at you know 36 hours, like you're talking about, your acetaminophen concentration is 50, which isn't that high, right, for, for an acute, but for a repeated, that's fairly high, and we would recommend, the guidelines would recommend uh, treatment um, of that patient. Absolutely. So, a very, it, it simplifies things a lot, and I hope that over time that simplification will lead to, you know, less errors in, in management. And I think the figures within this guideline really show it perfectly. Essentially, if you've taken Tylenol and you're outside of the rumac matthew normogram prognostication, you check acetaminophen level and you check liver function. If you're hepatically injured, you need treatment anyways. And if you're not hepatically injured, but if you still have acetaminophen around, or at least enough acetaminophen around, could cause injury, then you also need to be treated to prevent it. Figure four of the treatment guideline really goes through that accurately. One thing I did want to touch on for repeated supertherapeutic ingestion. So this is defined as taking acetaminophen supertherapeutically or overdosing on it in greater than 24 hours. So there's some definitions on what the overdose is. And in this guideline in figure four, you can see some defined doses here. It says you should start to get worried about a repeated supertherapeutic ingestion if a patient has taken six grams per day or 150 milligrams per kilogram per day, whichever is less, for 24 to 48 hours, or 4 grams per day, or 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, whichever is less, for greater than 48 hours. So this would include you know, up to 3 days of 4 grams of acetaminophen per day when you should start thinking about a repeated supertherapeutic ingestion. And I think this could be a little bit confusing for someone reading the guidelines because that's actually an FDA-approved dose of acetaminophen. And people could be taking it every day. The guideline is saying this qualifies as repeated supertherapeutic ingestion, and you could consider you know, evaluating them if they need to be treated for acetaminophen toxicity. Uh, so I wonder if you can comment on the rationale of putting that into the treatment assessment guideline. That was definitely a vigorous debate. I, I think I would summarize it just by saying, um, you know, margin of error and, and the fact that, uh, you know, so many patients don't really know how much they took or, or they, they guess. And so there's, you know, we have some data, it's retrospective data, but we published some data and others have found similar results that you probably have to be at more like 10 grams a day to get before you get into trouble. But you know, we're not going to ever cut it that close because what if it's that one patient and in a million who's been starved for three or four days for some reason, you know, and so their glutathione concentrations are low and they're probably, I would expect them to be more susceptible. So 
That's that's the only reason. It, it could be confusing to people to say, well, why aren't you stating that therapeutic dose is, is toxic? And that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the patient's estimate of the dose may be wrong. And so we're putting a very low threshold because acetylcysteine is, is remarkably safe. And we'd rather have you treat them than not treat them and have them get liver injury unnecessarily. Right. And it feels important to bring up here that in the figure, figure four, says if a patient has a history of repeated ingested and findings consistent with acetaminophen toxicity, like repeated vomiting, right upper quadrant abdominal tenderness, or mental health status changes. So it's not necessarily all comers here that you'd be evaluating someone taking four grams a day. And certainly there are people within the population that are predisposed to acetaminophen toxicity, such as those with depleted glutathione stores. So as a margin of error, that certainly seems reasonable. They have these signs and they're reporting just regular daily use. They probably still should be worked up. Yeah. So, so that is acute and chronic ingestion, the definitions that we have there and uh, the different ways we treat them. Now we got our next definition that the guideline put through, which I really like. And there's a lot of discussion about this right now because of some newer therapies that are coming out. But uh, right. we're talking about what is a high risk treatment group for acetaminophen overdose? So the guideline or the consensus made this definition. You want to comment on what that is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a great discussion. And, you know, the most, as usual, the most discussion occurs about topics where you have the least information because then everybody's speculation is valid, right? Because we don't have any data. Um, and that affects this a great deal. Um, but there's been some really nice uh, review articles, like Rob Henderson wrote a nice one in his chapter, I really, I guess, in, in Go Frank and, and lays out a, a nice rationale. Um, the, the, the panel didn't really like the term massive, which we often refer to it as, because the point isn't that it's not just that it's large. The issue is that that, that patient may demonstrate liver injury despite getting the usual therapeutic dose of acetylcysteine. So that's why they, they use the term high risk. Um, and that created a new line. Uh, basically, it's a line parallel to the current treatment line except at 300, starting at 300 micrograms per mil at four hours instead of 150. And so, but it's parallel going down so that if someone falls above that line as an acute ingestion, then there's a decent chance they're gonna get liver injury despite treatment with acetylcysteine and a fair number of practitioners, not all, frankly, uh, that was very clear from the discussion, but, I think the preponderance of practitioners would say, I'm going to give them an increased dose of acetylcysteine. Now, so, just, that, just to clarify for the listeners, that line, some might have heard of the acetaminophen double line, but essentially, if your treat, if, if your acetaminophen concentration is twice that of yeah. the treatment line yeah. from the Rumac Matthew nomogram, the consensus statement is defining that as a high risk group. Who could potentially de develop some some injury? Yeah. So 150 is the treatment line at four hours, but if you're at 300 or above, that's high risk. That's the double line, which is uh, what Dr. Dart is describing. Yep, you got it. I, I don't know if you want to cover this later, but I mean, what to do about that designation of, of being high risk? You know, there's well very little information available, um, and so the. the the panel had a principle that they 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 decided this was a conscious decision on their part early in the process, which was if we really don't have much information, we may make a recommendation, but we what we'll really do is refer them to uh, their poison center or a clinical toxicologist in their area to get because the the details may be important at that stage, and we don't want to make just a general rule until we have more data. And this is one of those where the, what the guideline ends up saying is, hey, at that stage, if you have someone above high risk, a lot of people would increase the dose of acetylcysteine. But talk to your talk to your poison center or talk, if you're lucky enough to have a, a, a toxicologist on your faculty, uh, talk to them and see wh what the local practice is so that uh, you could you know, stay consistent with with treatment practices in your area. 
I like that. And we were going to dive into this just a little bit later, but we might as well tackle it right now. So, (laughs) right. What do you do with the high risk groups? This is where toxicologists start saying things like fomepazole. And really, that's a whole other thing. So that's just a what's the term? A teaser. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. (laughs) But high dose NAC, that certainly is something that has been seen in a lot of areas of the nation. We do it. um, We we Mm -hmm. frequently recommend a higher dose of NAC. Uh, especially in these higher risk patients. And I, I really like the statements from the guideline. It's not overly prescriptive. It's simply, this is someone who you should consider higher doses in and probably get somebody involved who has done all the reading. Uh, yeah. What these are. Yeah. And the definition here is double the nomogram line or a reported ingestion of 30 grams, it looks like. It looks like this this treatment group is largely based off, I know, um, yeah, Rob Hendrickson's paper on the acetaminophen uh, nomogram double line. Also, yep. uh, Dr. Angela Chu's paper yep. on massive acetaminophen overdose, they used the double line or 40 grams, I think, was their ingested quantity. Yep. But let, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But one more thing that's really fascinating that the guideline brought in here is another definition. So acute, chronic, high risk, and then NAC stopping criteria, which <laughs> yeah. I think is wonderful. Can you comment on why this was intentionally put into the guideline sure sure um well, this is one of those practices that has evolved and i mean i can tell you i've been using it for 15 years um it, there's not a tremendous amount of literature on it obviously um there there are some things that you know there's some published guidelines like the australian guidelines and, and angela's work and and some wong and them they're you know, there's similarities where you can see people in their practice and their guidelines saying we need we need a more um, uniform decision point to stop uh, acetylcysteine infusions and that or not just infusions, but treatment at all. And that's really important because there are data, a nicely documented case series, for example, out there that like Suzanne, Suzanne Doyon has one, but the, but there are others that clearly document people having acetylcysteine uh, terminated prematurely and the patient going on to marked liver injury or death. So it was an important, the, the panel was really felt they had to address that. The details were a little, you know, there's a lot of individual variation about, well, what, what are the criteria for stopping? I mean, everyone agrees that the acetaminophen should be gone, right? Because otherwise, why would you stop? Um, and I think they all agreed in principle that, that the patient's, um, liver injury should be improving, but how do you actually come up with a, a standard or a, a standard recommendation? Let's put it that way for that. Um, and, uh, what they came up with is, is you do need the, the acetaminophen concentration below 10 and the ALT must be falling, but of course you can have a falling ALT without the patient getting better. So they included the INR as well. Uh, it needs to be normal or improving. And as a catch-all, the patient needs to be well. They don't need to go out and you know play tennis the next day. If they're still in the ICU and requiring supportive care in some type, then that's probably not a person I would stop acetylcysteine. So um, that, that was a long debate, actually, because the details of well, how much does the ALT need to come down and, and that type of thing. There was a lot of disagreement because we don't have studies that that address that specific issue. Um, but they came to closure on those stopping criteria, which I really feel like is one of the major, will be one of the major contributions and hopefully will stimulate some more research to understand that, meaning do they have to be, should they be tighter or looser than the current recommendation for stopping criteria? To put a pin in that is that really anytime you start acetylcysteine, then you know all I have to do is continue that until these criteria are met, and then I can stop. It'll get away some, you know, some of those awkward conversations I'm sure you've had. I know I have had where somebody said, "Yeah, we treated him. He's done with his 20 hours," and you start asking questions, and it's like, "Oh, damn, uh, maybe we shouldn't do that yet." <laughs> um, you know, hopefully it'll minimize that. I, I do feel that is a really important part of this guideline is so frequently you know, hospital order sets, uh, you treat someone with neck IV, you're going to give them a 20, <laughs> oh, yeah. 21 hour protocol. And then it falls off the mar. Nobody looks at it again. Yeah. 
and they need to yeah. stop thinking about it. Uh, you know, obviously, if you catch them pro- before they develop injury, that is all they need. But if you're still injured, you have to continue to treat the patient. And I think that's uh, really nice that this is in there. And that'll be really relevant. Lots of hospital pharmacists who might be listening to this got to consider what your next stopping criteria are. And if you've developed them, what's going on in your order sets? Should you actually have a stop in there? Really great. And I think that's super important. And I'm sure there was a lot of heated debate. I've heard if you put uh, five toxicologists in a room to talk about a subject, you get seven opinions. So. <laughs> yeah, at least. <laughs> well, let's let's go ahead and jump into NAC then. So we've talked about the definitions that the criteria, the consensus guidelines made. Let's talk about the treatment recommendations. So the bell of the ball here is NAC, right? This is what we use in acetaminophen overdose. This is kind of the workhorse of, of acetaminophen poisoning. And the NAC dosing that is recommended. There's been a lot of debate over that. And the consensus guideline came out with 300 mg per kilo over 20 to 24 hours is the minimum dose that should be given. And if you are higher risk, we talked about this before, probably you need more than that if you're in that high risk category, but the exact dose is undefined. Can you talk a little bit about the rationale for the NAC dosing? Yeah, this was this was fascinating, and I think it points out one of the the major weaknesses of systematic reviews. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm so old; I've gone through several different phases. But you know, at one point, the systematic review was considered the highest form of evidence. the The problem is, it can be, frankly, but the problem is, is that the literature published on a topic rarely addresses the clinical issue you're trying to address. Five five-year-olds cutting your hair doesn't mean a twenty-five-year-old is cutting your hair. That's my, my <laughs> rationale of systematic That's reviews right. based off of, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, That's sometimes a, poor data. That's a good one. That's a good uh, one. Yes, and this is a great example. So there's lots of papers that show. Oh, we use the three bag. We use the two bag. We use the four bag. We use the th- two bag altered this way, um, and it worked, or at least the patients seem to do well. But what you don't see. And actually, Angela Chu did a nice um, uh, review of this, showing that we just don't have data that compares the regimens. So we have no comparative information at all. And that's why the recommendation came out this way. Um, Everybody has their favorite uh, way to give acetylcysteine, but they don't have data um, that compares it to other regimens. Uh, and so the, the panel took this approach of saying, treat for basically, you know, the minimum would be you would treat for 20 hours with a dose of 300 milligrams per kilogram. Um, and how you and, give it, keep doing it however you work. Basically. Do it however you want. <laughs> I mean, the one, the, one, the, the biggest, well, not the biggest, but one important point here is, and it goes back to the stopping criteria is, well, what if I meet the stopping criteria at 16 hours or 12 hours, right? Um, and I'm sure you're familiar and, and for listeners, there, there is a, there is a prospective study from the UK that was very well done in Edinburgh that showed what's called the SNAP protocol and it treated for 12 hours. And, and I think that's, that's not unacceptable, certainly. I mean, the issue is it's one study and it's sort of a special instance of saying treating to an endpoint, meaning I treat till these these factors are met because in that study that's exactly what they did is they chose 12 hours but they could have chosen 10 they could have chosen 14 or they could have chosen 16 and say i treated i checked he, they didn't meet the criteria so i continued um so i think what will what i hope we see in the future is this evolution of treating the pa- patient what i refer to at least with the fellows is patient tailored acetylcysteine treatment that i think a lot of experienced people already do um, but we're not quite, the panel wasn't there yet, frankly, and, and, and I don't have data. So it was the prudent approach was to say, let's not get too, too wild here. Let's use the 300. And now somebody can use that to say, I'm going to test that against other regimens or a shorter regimen, whatever. And, and hopefully that will actually shorten up over time. Very fascinating. Yeah, certainly quite a lot of study, but lack of comparative data which is unfortunately a a chronic problem in toxicology but so the knack i i actually think is it's 
perfectly phrased. It allows people the flexibility to continue their regimens, but establishes some baseline criteria, but not overly prescriptive. For for the next big part, the next backbone, you could say, of toxicology, decontamination. This is one of our sometimes forgotten, sometimes disliked, sometimes overly lauded therapies, but trying to get the toxin out of the patient's gut. So single-dose activated charcoal is being recommended in the consensus guideline within four hours. And I think that is going to be something that many of the listeners uh, probably are more familiar with within one to two hours, because that's when absorption occurs. I know in the Adam, in in Dr. Chu's paper, they did up to four hours and saw some interesting things. So I've been a fan of it since then. Can you comment a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's actually two big issues in there. One is, should you even have an activated charcoal recommendation? Because we have an effective antidote. Um, I think that, you know, Angela's paper and and actually all the investigators from Australia have convinced me that it does make a difference. And so I would um, I would certainly agree with two hours. The panel, um, again, with a lot of debate, because there isn't much data besides um, there's more than one study, but their but their their applicability to this issue is not direct in a couple of cases. Panel's uh, feeling was or conclusion was certainly that activated charcoal binds it, and that certainly as long as acetaminophen concentrations are in the gut, that it would be useful to give it. The only question is, when are they in the gut, and how far how far out would they be in the gut, and when you look at it that way and have the discussion and sort of that approach, it's not an, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that four hours is appropriate. Um, so that's what the panel chose. And uh, I don't think anyone would criticize somebody for saying, well, my institution needs to be two hours, but um, hopefully again, that this will stimulate research to try to look at that um, and see whether there is a, what is the top end for that, uh, for that effect. Well, thank you for discussing that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the NAC treatment recommendations in terms of when to start N-acetylcysteine. I saw this in here. I really like this. It's actually pretty intuitive, but it might not be something many people are thinking of. But the consensus statements state that you should start treatment with N-acetylcysteine if you're unable to plot the patient's concentration on the nomogram by the eight-hour mark. Can you talk a little bit about the rationale for that? Yeah, this one's really straightforward, but pretty much all theoretical in the sense that the data that you start to see liver injury when uh, acetylcysteine is started eight hours or more after ingestion, that's clear. And how much difference it makes, and I, you know, we, we know, I think we all know from practice that if it's nine hours instead of eight hours, the patient's not going to die. They may bump their ALT a little bit more. And so the idea was that because acetylcysteine is safe, just start it and you can always stop it, but you can't start it earlier if you wait. So um, pretty simple. It, yeah, <laughs> it is very. Yeah, it's a very no data. I mean, little data, except to say that time is an issue. In my talks, I have a slide on, you know, time is liver to, to rip off the uh, the cardiologist from 20 years ago who said time is myocardium but time is liver too in the case of, a, of, of acetaminophen so it's a reasonable thing to start um until you can get your your labs back because we have to remember that some of us deal i mean i assume in, in wisconsin you do but certainly we do in our service area and i know um, for example the new england poison center was very adamant that they may it may be hours they may draw the blood, but they may not have a acetaminophen concentration for hours or even overnight. So just get the acetylcysteine started and we'll uh, we'll figure it out after we've started right. treatment. Low risk, high reward, potentially. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. I think we are so sort of ingrained now from practicing with the Rumac Matthew nomogram for so long that everyone kind of thinks you start treatment after the level's above the line. But this is just yeah. a great reminder if you're not going to know if the level's above the line before they cross into the time frame where they might actually be yeah. becoming hepatically injured, just start treating them until you find out because it's very low risk. So I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, let's let's talk about the usefulness of an acetaminophen level. The guidelines, the consensus statement comes up with a few uh, statements regarding measuring acetaminophen. Number one, and I think this is great, a non-detectable acetaminophen between two and four hours 
likely excludes ingestion. So there's been a lot of discussion over the utility of a pre-four-hour acetaminophen concentration because the rumac matthew Nomogram starts at four hours. So what do we do with the pre-four-hour level? So the guidelines come out and say if between two and four hours you don't have a detectable level, there is no ingestion. I, I don't even know if we need to discuss that. I just think it's great that it's in. It's in yeah, it's, it's, again, one of those things that a lot of people had started to use, but there is some data, right? And um, it's not a randomized controlled trial, but we do have data that is pretty reliable. And I'm, there wasn't a lot of debate about that. You know, there was a lot of debate about, well, can, can they have any level, right? I mean, can we interpret a level of, of 20 or 50? And of course, once you get into that discussion, they're just... The only thing that we, I think we can really be sure of is if it's zero, I mean, if you're not, if, if you can't measure it and they've had at least two hours to absorb, then they, they took something else. Pretty unlikely. Yes. It's yeah. not, it's not salicylate where we have these weird cases where very delayed absorption. Yeah. It's so, yeah, I think that's, it's really nice to have that as a tool to rule out potential toxic patients, but there are some weird scenarios. So let's talk about those ones. There are multiple scenarios where the consensus statements recommend repeating acetaminophen levels if you are below the treatment line. And that would be the extended release products, if somebody takes extended release acetaminophen, or anticholinergic co-ingestions or gut motility slowing co-ingestions. Can you talk a little bit about what the recommendations are here? There was a lot of debate about this because there's few data. You know, there's the range of practice ranges from ignoring the fact that a, a drug is an extended release or, a, or an anticholinergic or an opioid to always getting a second concentration in those patients. And I'm sure for most of us, our practice is somewhere in between those extremes. And they were both proposed, actually. Um, so I think in the end, um, I view them as the same. Essentially, it's for some reason, the drug is entering slowly. And do we need to do a second level in those uh, patients? And the answer is, Yes, in general, but with lots of leeway to to not do that necessarily. I think one thing to emphasize here, because it's it's very confusing to people, and it was to some of the panel members, actually, we have seen papers published about um, uh, sustained release uh, formulations from Europe and Australia. A couple different groups have reported, I think uh, Sweden was first, that seemed to be different. And their formulation is different. We've, I, I, we've got that information and looked it up. That is different than what we have for extended release preparations in the United States, which when you look at the, the pharmacokinetic data are not always that different than extended release acetaminophen. But these other ones are quite effective at extending the release and can form uh, bezoars. And there's some really nasty cases out there. So it's almost like the product, you know, the product does too good a job, I guess. But yeah. I've seen some striking photos of dissolution experiments. And it's, it, is, it is truly striking that, I mean, they can be there a day in a simulated gastric environment, for example, with a little, you know, bar circulating the liquid. And they oh, just don't break yeah. Yeah, the hot plate, they just don't break down. You know, they don't just, they just don't dissolve. Very Uh, interesting. Yeah. But those are not in the United States, as far as we can tell. And we did ask and look, and it's, there's, there's certainly not a, there's nothing in the FDA Orange Book about approval of it. And we talked to the manufacturer, we've talked to our colleagues in, in Europe and Australia, and it appears that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but currently those products don't exist in the United States because I think this recommendation would actually be much different if those formulations did exist in the United States. So for the listeners, we don't always know what patients take, but these would be two scenarios where you're probably going to want to make sure you're being diligent in assessing the patient's risk. So extended release acetaminophen products, the consensus recommendations, if your sample was drawn um, between four and 12 hours after ingestion and is below the treatment line, these patients might be at risk of becoming what we call a line crosser, where they actually could cross over into the treatment category at a later time because they're continuing to absorb. So the recommendations for extended release, if it's drawn between four and 12 hours, repeat the concentration four to six hours after the first measurement. 
And for ingestion with an anticholinergic or an opioid agonist medication that'll slow the gut down, it's very similar. If at any time you draw an acetaminophen level and you're below the treatment line, you should check at least one more four to six hours after the first measurement. And of course, practice is going to vary a little bit, but this is certainly something you need to consider in these patients. Okay. Finally, we've talked a lot about, okay, acute versus chronic management. What's our NAC dosing? When do we start NAC? Uh, and how do we plot our levels? This is all sort of bread and butter, acetaminophen, but let's look to the future a little bit. A, a lot of people were probably uh, wondering what the take was going to be on fomepazole. <laughs> so I can read the the everybody is excited about the new the new acetaminophen treatment potentially. Uh, lots more data coming out. But the consensus statement says the addition of fomepazole to, to acetylcysteine in the treatment of serious acetaminophen ingestions was proposed. The panel concluded that the data available did not support a standard recommendation. As for any complicated or serious acetaminophen poisoning, a poison center or clinical toxicologist should be consulted. Would you like to provide any comment on the rationale, <laughs> debate, any, how, how long the debates were? Yeah. In the room? <laughs> well, the debate wasn't too long in the sense that... <clears throat> Um, we don't have much data, right? We have no control data. Um, and, and and I have to say, and I think as a caution, um, so interestingly, we submitted a couple of abstracts this, to this year's NACCT about failures of fomepazole, and they were rejected. I find that whole thing fascinating because when we talk about publication bias, we, we think of the person writing the report, but actually journals have a very strong negative perception of, of, of negative data, right? They, they, they just don't see the value in it a lot of times. But I have to say that I've had a couple cases in particular that I thought were perfect for fomepazole that went on to develop serious liver injury despite getting fomepazole in sort of the 15 to 20 hour uh, period after ingestion with a high um, acetaminophen concentration. One died. And so there's more to the story, right? I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't use it. I think it should be reserved for the more severe. And I, the panel really, when they talked about it, it was, I don't think there, was, there wasn't much disagreement with that. There is a, a randomized trial of fomepazole underway, and hopefully that will provide some answers. Although like any prospective trial, it will, it will only apply to the patient population that was enrolled in the study. So it'll be a start at least. I think those are really salient comments to make. I think everyone has a story of, uh, yeah. you know, fomepazole being thought of, at least in their patient, in a question of whether or not it's going to work. And right now, all of the data that exists includes fomepazole being given with a largely effective antidote. There's no comparators. It's a right. hard to suss out. But I know there's a lot of fervor over it. I know some practices yeah. where it's given to almost everyone. And so... I'm sure it's being over. We, we don't have a well-identified population right now. There probably is. The, the mouse data looking at late acetaminophen is really, really impressive. Yeah, it but, is. It is. Uh, and, and there's very little downside. I understand. It's just resource utilization. Right. But yeah. I think more prospective and controlled data will help provide clarity in the appropriate population. Right now, I'm sure maybe there is a transplant being saved with, with if, if it is being overused, yeah. but should it be used? I appreciate the comments there uh, and and everyone keeping in mind that publication bias plays a big role in the cases we do see as well. So, yeah. Yep. Any final comments related to the guideline that you would like listeners to know um, or any? Yeah, I, I think a nice, a nice closure is number one, I, I want while speaking today, um, the panel was, was fantastic and, you know, you didn't, People didn't try to hold each other hostage or do quid quo pro type stuff. I mean, it was a very honest and uh, and probably the best uh, panel I've ever worked with. And I want to thank them. And then just to remind everybody, especially, you know, toxicologists have a lot more experience with this. But but while the guidelines may look comprehensive in many ways, there's still lots of clinical scenarios that the panel could not address and didn't address. And so it's important to reinforce over and over again that 
it's appropriate to get the poison center involved, your regional poison center or your institutional clinical toxicologist involved to help with these cases because there's a lot of nuances and sometimes you literally can save someone's life by asking for some advice. So please do that and hopefully we'll we'll see more studies coming out to iron out some of these uh, some of the unclarities here that uh, that still persist. Very sage wisdom always involved. <laughs> Uh, those <laughs> who've, who've been reading up on this stuff in these cases, I think that's really important. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Richard Dart, for joining the show today and providing your insights and in-depth expertise, as well as being the voice box for the panel that helped create this guideline. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to you. Okay, that will wrap it up for this episode. If you want a high-yield review of everything we just talked about, check the show notes for a link to a Cliff Notes version of this discussion that goes through the treatment recommendations and the definitions we just talked about. Once again, thank you to our guest, Dr. Rick Dart, for coming on the show and acting as the voice box for the entire panel that put together this consensus statement. Honorable mentions should go to Michael E. Mullins, Teresa Matushik, and Michelle Ruha, Michelle Burns, Karen Simone, Michael Bueller, Kenan Hurd, Marianne Mazur, Amr Shahi, Christine M. Stork, Sean Varney, Alexandra Funk, Lee Cantrell, John Cole, William Banner, Andrew Stolbach, Robert Hendrickson, Scott Lusick, Marco Sivlioti, Mark Sue, Lewis Nelson, and Barry Rumack, who comprised the additional 20 members of the panel. Statistically, it's impossible that I didn't butcher one of those names, so feel free to send me some hate mail if I did. If you liked what you listened to today and found this valuable, please leave us a review as it helps us reach other people interested in learning about toxicology or new developments in the tox world. You can follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever. And you can follow us on social media to learn about new episodes being released and any other interesting projects we're getting up to. You can follow the show on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison Farm D. Instagram is talks underscore talk. And we have a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. You can always reach out to the show at talkstalk1, that's T O X T A L K 1, at gmail.com. There's nothing better than hearing from a listener that a show was useful or that you liked something specific. So please reach out. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening in today and hope we can see you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.